Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas, thoughts, or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families without it being lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, a proud member of the Exceptional Podcast Network. This is Michelle Wintering. This episode is a special episode, number 79. Unfortunately, due to travel and illness taking down two of our three hosts this week, we thought we would bring you one of our favorite interviews instead. Two years ago, Aisha Butt, a pioneer in the field of speech and language in Pakistan, sat down to talk about starting a master's program in her country, what help she needs, and the trouble she ran into. And while you're at it, make sure you check our website at speechsciencepodcast.com, which links directly to our network friends at XPN. And also check us out at patreon.com slash speech science podcast. Of course, text or call 614-681-1798 and email us too at speech science podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to subscribe so you can hear our voice every week, subscribe at speech science podcast.com. You're listening to speech science. Enjoy. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Hi there, and welcome back to Speech Science Podcast. My name is Lucas Stuber. Um, I'm here with Ivan and Chandru and our guest, um, Aisha from Pakistan. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled that you've uh, you've decided to share your experiences, and um, I- I'm glad that we've gotten to know each other. You know, you were you were kind enough to to introduce me to a conference that you'd organized in in Pakistan. Um, you know, this what several months ago here, and unfortunately because of visa problems, I wasn't able to to come. But um, I, I love what you were doing there. Um, obviously, my, my background is all in augmentative and alternative communication. 
Um, but I, I would love to hear uh, more about yourself. Uh, if you could introduce yourself, how you got into the field. Yes, uh, my name is Aisha Bhatt. I head a department um, of speech and language pathology at Rifa University in, in Islamabad in Pakistan. I graduated from, um, from England in 2014 from the University of Reading. And since then, I've gone on to do a PhD as well that I've just completed. But um, my expertise sort of lie in pediatrics as well. And um, unfortunately, I don't have the the liberty to be able to only work with pediatrics because in Pakistan, we don't have that many speech and language pathologists. So um, we work across the board from anything and everything. And, you know, you can imagine how difficult that is because you, you're not really able to specialize in one area um, because you, you really do need to help others in other areas as well. So Rifa, the university, the university that I work with, um, is a pioneer in setting up the first speech and language pathology course in Pakistan, and this was only in 2010. So it's a very, very, very recent, um, recently that they've started uh, the masters. Prior to the masters, there was a diploma that uh, did exist, but the diploma was um, again it was started by people within Pakistan who got a few clinicians from abroad who trained them and then left. And for years and years, this, this diploma was being um, run by people who were just doing things the way that they wanted to do them. So once, prior to my sort of heading into speech pathology, I went and observed the, the people who were working there in the clinics. And there were just a few techniques that they had used, and those techniques were being employed on everybody, applied on everybody. So things like, you know, if they were doing sucking and um, blowing exercises, then the blowing and sucking exercises were being done with children with autism, with Down syndrome, with cleft palate, because that is what they had learned. Um, so when I went to England, I, I had decided that I would return back to Pakistan and I would definitely, definitely bring back what I have. And I was very fortunate that my husband was in Pakistan and we shifted back. And so I, I took this on um, from there. And from 2010 onwards, we've, we've been running a master's program, which, is, which has two intakes per year. So every six, six months, we have another semester. And um, I'm not going to say, I, I'll be very honest, we haven't really reached where we wanted to reach. And we're still probably struggling because of, you know, obviously lack of resources, lack of proper people, um, trained people. Those those issues exist. But the fact is, at least where we've reached somewhere from, from those blowing and sucking exercises to, you know, something that is more meaningful and more evidence-based. So that's where my, my background is. It's from you know, England back to Pakistan. And I do apologize. I have a very, very strong Pakistani accent. And I understand that, you know, um, I may fumble a little as well while speaking to you, but I'll try and be as clear as as, as possible. You sound, I think very, you sound great, to, to, in my opinion, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you sound yeah. great. I have a very strong American accent, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do this weird shifting thing where I can't decide what accent I want to be. So you'll probably, <laughs> you'll probably see that. And sometimes I have Spanish influenced English. <laughs> so. And um, with with regards to multicultural, like you were saying, so we have five provinces here, and each province has its own language. So you can imagine just within the country there are there are five languages, and then further dialects within those languages that we need to deal with. So multicultural difficulties sort of exist here as much as you know one would think oh well it's one country and one language but it's not actually one language within that one country there are five to six different provinces five provinces with each one with their own language and each language with its own several dialects so we we deal we need to deal with quite a lot of things at quite a few levels and you know even with regards to assessment and therapy um what 
you guys might take as um how do i explain this what 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 might come to you naturally like you know you pick up a self or a kelf and you just administer the this the the test we don't have the luxury of doing that we don't have tests we've got no published tests in urdu at all and that makes assessment so difficult but then again it makes therapy dif- difficult as well because when you haven't got the right assessment how do you then move on to the right therapy or what areas to look at so we're dealing a lot with sort of informal assessments dynamic assessments trying to make the most of whatever we can and you know using um internationally based tests informally to to get our own sort of language samples out um and that's quite a that's quite a huge issue but with regards to lucas and the conference that we had one of the biggest problems that we faced over the last 4 or 5 years since this course started is you know even things like aac the teacher who was actually teaching aac had never seen a big mac in her life um so she didn't know what a big mac was wow. but she was teaching what a big mac is and you know so she didn't know what a dynavox was apart from what you see in pictures and on youtube but that's like you know teaching somebody um how to drive a car without them actually being in a car ever so our students know what a big mac is but if you show them a big mac in real life they will probably not be able to tell you that that's a big mac do do you have access to that equipment now we we're better yes because last year we decided um we sat down as i have a team of five clinicians with me um who we trained and then they they went on to join the course so um last year we decided that each year will be our focus year for one particular disorder or one particular area that we want to to target so the last year from sort of june till june this year was aac um the only thing that we've been able to acquire is gotok um gotok 4 and aac uh, the big mac so those are the only two things that we've got now with regards to ac but at least that's like we've reached somewhere we at okay, least I'm have gonna, a big mac to look at i'm going to i'm going to arrange for a, a care package <laughs> to go out there because that's um that's a, a relative poverty of supplies what about now in 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 pakistan is there sort of a ubiquity of of touch devices or is this um sort of still emerging like tablets and that sort of thing we have yes with with regards to tablets we've got lots of tablets and they're very very cheap um and we get a lot of stuff from india uh, from uh, china as well so um chinese products are a lot cheaper that we we can get our hands on uh, with with um with this aac event that took place one of our students who has two children with special needs um we'd been asking her for a long time to actually work towards ac for her kids and it just never hit her but when this conference happened when this seminar happened she went ahead and she's now developing a, the first device which is called uh, coco that that's sort of i think one of her kids name or her name and um she's she's designing this and it's coming out in the next 2 to 3 weeks and it has a lot of it has a lot of obviously a drop uh, sort of it's not perfect because it's it's being done by her and she didn't have the support that she needed but she's kind of reached out to people and people have been very very good and i think she's reaching out to you as well i've asked her to to get in touch with you and Please. she's going to reach yeah. out to you and she's she's putting this device together which is the going to be the first device so we're we're now you know like i said we we decided that we would do it year by year so that we can we can focus on one thing at one time and so because aac was our main thing we did we did actually go into aac and 
our students are now this year they're designing apps and they're designing softwares and she's coming up with this device which is an urdu based device which is also you know a very good thing but we were hoping that you would come to pakistan this year and then we could do something um about a a stronger device that we can have a more sort of robust yeah i'm well, i'm still very hopeful that that can happen but please i would love to connect with her and and then this device that she's building is this a a high tech system or it's it's a mid tech system she's taken on um a tablet and what she's done from in that tablet is that you take pictures of um whatever your child is you know likes so let's say it's a, it's got a grade of 6 six pictures and then the child you put in the pictures that the child wants so let's say the child wants juice or biscuits and you can just take pictures of whatever and then um the child points to whatever they want and then it says the item for them so they'll point to the biscuit if they want a biscuit and it'll say biscuit for for the child so it's a very um very easy very low level something very basic um that she's doing it's it's quite a good effort i think it's a it's a good no, start at least somebody started somewhere that's brilliant and in urdu or english or all the well, above well it's it's because you record your voice on it so I it see. can be any language so if it's a biscuit and let's say it's a biscuit for you or or a, I don't know like um water if the child wants water then you can just record water on it and we'll do pani you know whatever the the word is in our language so it, the good thing is that it can be used across a lot of uh, different cultures and a lot of languages and which is a good thing and even in within pakistan we were thinking of sort of telling her to do um a further study to look at using that device with various languages within the country as well and doing your research on that. Yeah, I yeah, that I mean that's a brilliant idea and that's um I I don't want to tread over but I I guess to continue this theme. Um you know, one thing you've already spoken to and that you and I have spoken to in the past is sort of a relative poverty of evidence, right? In in practice and you just brought that up in a yes. in a variety of different ways. So it it feels like um you're sort of finding yourself yourself personally in a role where a lot of that onus is falling on you to organize is that unfair to say <laughs> well um scary? i've kind of taken it <laughs> it's very scary it's very scary but i've kind of i think i've taken on that role because when i came back it's it's part of the responsibility that i that i have uh when i returned to pakistan i was the first foreign qualified speech and language pathologist in this entire region um so obviously initially people looked up to me and it it's scary because sometimes i don't have the answers um it's scary also because i you know i don't know everything so um it's 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 very scary because especially with students they look up to you and they want they want answers and you don't have those answers most of the time so you have to go and search for them and uh, but with organizing things i a i enjoy them b i kind of feel like that's that's my responsibility i if if i'm in that position then it's not fair for me to keep everything to myself and for me to just learn and keep it to my, to myself it's better for me to share it with other i can't do everything and um other people need to sort of step in as well but i've got a wonderful team and i think that really helps it really helps that all the the other four professionals that i have with me are so dedicated that even if i at times sort of sit back and think oh god this is not going to happen they're the ones who push me forward and say no 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 we've reached here let's you know let's just there's just a little bit to go to the line um even with this aac event that we had it almost fell apart about um a month before it was supposed to be executed because because of several reasons including financial and um we did think that we would just do a small you know course or something and leave the big conference aside but then my my team sort of pushed me and we 
we went ahead and it, it happened and we had 1100 people attending that um, event. I was going to say, I've seen and the photographs. It looks like it was hugely successful. It was, it was, I, you know, I can't thank everybody else and, you know, can't thank you as well. But I mean, thank you so much for, for helping us in this entire time. I think it helps when people, we, we wanted to do this event a year before, a year earlier, but we couldn't do it then because the people that were supposed to come backed out at the very last minute because of security reasons. Um, and they didn't feel that it was secure enough. And I think one of the few challenges that we we have, apart from obviously the financial challenges that we have, resource challenges that we have, are also to do with the fact that people think that Pakistan is a very scary place to come to, which is not the case at all. I mean, uh, David Baines and Ia Draffin came and we had a brilliant time with them. And, you know, um, they were very kind and they went online and they explained to people how wonderful their trip was and how safe it was and you know, this what they had imagined or envis- envisaged Pakistan to be, it was nothing like that at all. It's completely different. And I'm sure Chandru will agree with that. I mean, people tend to tend to think India, Pakistan, this region is is like a really scary region. But in fact, once you reach India and Pakistan and all these places, you understand how lovely these countries are and how hospitable people are. Yeah, I right. can't agree more with that. Yeah. You talked a little bit about how you see many of the assessments and uh, and things like that as Eurocentric. So I was wondering too um, if you uh, how uh, if, if you have any ideas of how to rectify that, or if you have any advice to maybe people who are listening to them who are making materials, you know, in the west in the Western world, or and, and making assessments in the Western world. How would you suggest they make assessments to be culturally sensitive for many different regions in, in the world because it is becoming a Christian global profession? First of all. I have no idea what Eurocentric means. So or you like lost me there. Is, yeah, it's like centric, you know, I think many of the therapy materials and things like that are very central to America and yeah, just Western. general European culture. I'm well, even Western, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of language specific, even, you know, even small things like um, the the self or the self in Britain is very different to the self in in America. So um, where, you know, things like pretzels are quite common for the American people, there's no concept of a pretzel in Britain when when I was studying. So, you know, um, even tests that are designed in English when applied in another English speaking population, they're not really, they're not accurate. So, I mean, it's it's as, as minute as that. So an American test applied in the Ameri- on the American population is very different to the same test, even though British is also speech- speak English, it's not the same. And um, I know that Chris Brebner also did a study on RAPT and she went to Singapore and she um, did the RAPT in Singaporean English and it came out with completely different results and she had to do her own test. So um, I think it's like you were saying, the tests are probably designed more for the population that you live in because they need to be linguistically and culturally uh, sensitive to to that particular uh, environment or to, to that particular region or the country. And it's not always very easy to transfer them in that way. And I think people are becoming more and more aware and they are doing things like, you know, I've, um, I've noticed with a lot of new books that are coming up or a lot of therapy tools that are coming up, they are keeping the Muslim community in mind and maybe not using shorts where they could might in the past have used a person you know female wearing shorts or a bikini or you know uh, something different they're no longer using that kind of clothing because they understand that the population that they're going to be reaching out to within even the states um maybe not you know sensitive they may be sensitive to something like that Um, or using vocabulary that is you know i mean things like it's it's a silly thing to say but pig just Mm -hmm. just the word pig 
is um, it's something very cute in the American culture. And, you know, you've got a piggy bank and it's, you know, Peppa Pig and <laughs> it's so cute. But in Pakistan or in the Muslim culture, um, sometimes they say, oh, don't actually say the word pig because your tongue will not be clean for the next 60 days. So just using that word in itself is not considered appropriate. Sure. And I think so. I think people are becoming more aware. And as we're sort of coming together, I think uh, people are being aware of that and they are being culturally sensitive. But I think it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult to say that, you know, a test that you've developed in, in America can be used in Pakistan. And that I, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this as well as I need to. Um, maybe Lucas can help. No, that's, I, I mean, that's fantastic. Well, it, I, what it brings to mind for me is um, in the process of developing free speech, right, with my colleagues, um, led by Ajit Narayanan in, in India, um, and even in, prior to my joining the team uh, in the development of Avas, uh, which means voice in Hindi, um, you know, one of the things that's been a, a real trend is trying to get, you know, Arabic versions and, and all these other things. And we do have 17 languages that are represented now, so there's quite a bit. But one thing we didn't take into account is even little things like, um, you know, to, like the photo, this, the, the symbol for greeting someone, for example, was a handshake. And we had to flip that around so that the correct hand for the culture was being used, right? Um, same thing with uh, some some representations of time and these other things that, um, you know, we just sort of take for granted. Uh, so so that's very interesting. I mean, that's um, before before you joined, we were sort of discussing and um, I was thinking about the example of, uh, of PECs and low tech systems almost being the easiest to adapt um, just because you have total control over the language and the order of the words and, you know, these other things. Um, but I. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a challenge. I remember, um, and, and the other thing that happens with assessments even here is that they age, right? So, you know, there'll be articulation assessments, for example, where they show like a phone booth or an old rotary phone and kids in the US have no idea what that is. Um, or language too, which do the same thing, where they say, oh yeah, you do, you're lost and you need to ask someone for directions. Apparently all the kids will say, why don't you just Google map it or ask Siri yeah, where to go? Right. Or that <laughs> yeah. I remember giving, um, I, I guess I won't name the assessment. I don't know if it's bad to say, but there, there's a, a certain famous aphasia assessment where one of the questions is, um, you know, why does everybody in the army camp hate the bugler? Uh, and I, I'm paraphrasing. Wow. And, um, and, and the, the person I was assessing said, what's a, what's a bugler? And, um, <laughs> And, and the answer is that that's the person that plays reverie in the morning to wake up all the soldiers. So it's like the alarm clock. Everybody hates the alarm clock. But this is, you know, this was an 80 some odd year old man and he didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. these things, uh, they change um, quickly and also can change in terms of racial sensitivity. Like I collect old sure. materials, for example, and I have um, a CH articulation book that talks about Charlie Ching Chong and his uh, Chinese laundry. And uh, it, it's just amazing. I want to frame some of these things and make a museum of horrors. Um, With, anyway, uh, that was a long monologue. Go ahead. Sorry, Lucas, I was just going to add, you know, um, when you said PECs and low-tech um, devices, I, I, of course, I, I agree with you. But one of the biggest issues that we have here is also the fact that people are very sensitive to using PECs because they think that that will hinder the child's ability to speak. And the myths that follow with PECS and AAC still exist. We've, we, we're trying to break those barriers. And one of the reasons that we had this conference was to explain to them that, look, if your child is 12 years old and he's not speaking, at least, you know, at least give him a chance to communicate. It's more about communication than it is about speaking. 
Um, and people think that, oh, no, you know, if we put our child on pecs or a device, that our child will never be able to speak because the speech right. therapist is not doing their work properly. Right. So that's another mindset with the, that we have to deal with um, at our end in Pakistan over here. Well, and we get that here, too, certainly. But we have more SLPs and, you know, where you have evidence we can leverage and I'm able to talk parents out of it. I know Pakistan isn't a big homogenous block and everyone interacts the same, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the attitudes towards communication disorders and services in them. I have a bit of experience with that in India, but I've noticed that especially at the preschool level, much of services for speech and language tend on teaching pre-academic skills as opposed to more functional ones, which is how I feel early intervention in the United States works. I was wondering if you could also comment on what do you think the attitudes are and how services look like a, a little bit. Thank you, Chandru. Uh, that's that's such a valid point. That is such a valid point. Thank you so much. It's um, absolutely true. Uh, we we used to face the same sort of issues here in Pakistan as well, that people would work more on, like you said, linguistic, uh, more literacy skills and other things rather than actually language. Um, and it's, it's sort of broken. We've sort of broken that back now, but we're still struggling with it um, at some levels. And I think we're struggling more with people who did not join the masters. I'm not saying this because we because of the masters, but what I'm trying to say is that people who were actually doing the diploma and what who were who had certain patterns, we had to actually break their patterns and teach them again and reteach them and explain to them that actually it's not about teaching ABC and it's about teaching functional communication. It's about teaching, you know, speech skills and pre-linguistic skills. And those are, those are the important parts. Um, you're absolutely right. People still tend to focus more on that area rather than um, teaching language, but it's, mm. it's getting better. We, we are getting there. And, um, we, as, as, you know, we've taken it upon us, we, we ensure that we have regular trainings, especially in Rifa and we try and make them as free as possible for people to attend. And these are the sort of things that we're working on. We're trying to explain to people, but it's, it's, um, I don't know if it's the same in India, but in Pakistan, one of the biggest problems is that there is actually lack of awareness, even within the, the professional community. So, Things like, you know, a pediatrician will, if, if a child goes to a pediatrician, the pediatrician will say, actually, wait till your child is about five years old. Um, once they're four or five years old, then take them to a speech therapist because by then they'll start speaking. But the problem is by five, when the child has actually not spoken or the child has, is not communicating in any way and the parents bring them to us, a lot of time has actually passed where we could have given really right. good early intervention. And now the child has this, you know, you have a five-year-old with... A communication disorder or things like you know um clinicians people go to clinicians and say my child's stammering and there's a lot of evidence to say that litcom is a very good approach that can be used before six years of age and you know that sort of thing but because the clinicians have heard of litcom but don't know how to implement litcom some of them will actually say actually you know what you need to do is just go go home wait till your child comes out of it naturally um, and if they don't don't come out of naturally by seven or seven and a half, bring them back to us because then they'll be able to follow things like prolonged speech and the the instructions that we give. And then those parents come back when the child is seven or eight, and by then we say, actually, sorry, but you know, Litcom is only useful to six years of age, and now your child will have to um, live with the stammer that they have. I'm not saying that you know that any child who comes for Litcom comes out of their stammer, but I'm just saying that. I, at least there is some evidence to say that if if we had tried this, there was a possibility that the child may not have had that stammer. Um, even with adults, you know, we I've I've had so many cases where 
um, people have gone up to doctors and said, look, you know, I have this problem, I'm not swallowing properly. And they will never refer the, the client to a clinician, either because they don't know that a speech and language therapist does swallowing or the fact that um, they know, but they don't give them the respect as a profession. They don't feel that because you have not done an MBBS, you are not a doctor, that you're not at the same level and you're sort of beneath. Right. So um, in a way, sorry, your, your question was more language based and I've kind of taken it to another dimension completely, but it, it sort of took me to that, to that. And uh, that, that is unfortunate. That is an issue. Sorry. Can you tell us more about the speech and language preparation programs at the university level in Pakistan? The for preparation in- levels? Yes. For yeah, like what do you have to do to become a speech therapist uh, in Pakistan? For the master's in speech and language pathology, it's a two years course and uh, we've, it's, about 65 credit hours that you need to complete. But um, but prior to that, you must have either a psychology background or a linguistics background or some sort of a background. But what we've done is we've also incorporated some courses within the master's. So if you haven't done psychology previously, you you do a semester of psychology as well. Um, But there, there are no bridging courses. Like, you know, when you come to the States, when I was going to the States, they said, well, you don't have a psychology or a linguistics background, so you need to do certain hours, credit right, hours. Right. Or when I went to when I went to Reading, they said, actually, um, you've done your master's, but you don't have exactly the same. Like, you don't have a, a, a bridging course in between. So I had to do a master's in linguistics and child language before I did speech and language pathology. But in Pakistan, there's no such thing. So when we first started its master's, um, they kept it open for anybody and everybody. So anyone can can join. Anyone who's done um, 16 years of education can join. So anyone who's done their bachelor's can then join. And it doesn't really matter what subject you've had previously. Um, however, they prefer subjects like psychology, linguistics, um, medicine, or any other allied health sort of related subjects. We've we've often spoken about having a bridge, bridge, but the problem is that as soon as um, our masters, our first batch of masters graduated, some of the students went and started another masters program with another university. So because they started that masters, um, we can't now bring in this new thing about having a bridge prior to going into that masters. But what we've done is, in return, we've made those two years very stringent and very very tough. Um, and we're trying to incorporate as much as we can. So we're doing lots and lots of clinical practices. And, you know, we incorporate clinics within the the courses that we're teaching, like um, clinical decision making. And we've also done, uh, we've kind of signed MOUs with different organizations, special needs centers, hospitals. And we take our students there and we try and get them to do as much placement as possible as well. And we've been very, very lucky. Um, a lot of clinicians abroad have helped us. And they said, look, we'll do Skype, online Skype sort of supervisions as well. And uh, so Mariam Saida is in Dubai and, you know, whenever she gets a chance, she helps us and she she does that. But you're right. There's, there's nothing really prior to that, like a bridging course that, you know, a year's bridging course is something that you could do before you enter the master's. I would have loved for something like that to be to be in place. Once they graduate for the master's level degree, is there a credentialing or a licensing that they must uh, take? in order to serve as speech-language pathologist in Pakistan? We, uh, well, funny enough, Lucas and I were just speaking about this before the interview. This is exactly what we were talking about. When our students, when students from Rifa graduate, we have a competency uh, score, a competency chart that they must fulfill that we've we've, um, developed through sort of looking at other competency uh, requirements from across the world. So at Rifa, we can guarantee that, you know, we are doing this. We we have a competency... um, list and we have 
a log that they must fill of a certain number of students before we actually give them their degree. Um, a, lot, a lot of other places are not doing that, actually. And um, as soon as you graduate, you're free to go and work. And that's that's all that's required, just that degree. In some cases, there are people working without that degree as well. They haven't qualified as yet, but they've been, because there's such a shortage of uh, professionals, that they've been hired while they're still studying in their first year of master's. And we have to actually call those people up and tell them, look, don't do this because these students don't have a background of speech pathology. They have just started and it's, you know, we would we would really recommend that you wait for another year before you hire them so that they've had their, at least had their clinical practice under supervision from us. So we're doing whatever we can to, to ensure that we give the best possible. But um, Lucas and I were speaking about exactly this uh, before okay. the interview started. We were talking about one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we do not have a regulatory body or a governing body like the ASHA or the RCSLT. And um, both Lucas and I were discussing this and we felt that just by having a regulatory body, a lot of things can be streamlined. A lot of things can be you know, um, brought to, to, to the quality that we want them to come to. Because if you have a body, then that body will try and create awareness. If there is a body, they will say, look, you know, any course that is uh, sending out students must fulfill these requirements. If there is a regulatory body, then you will be pushed to have CPD, you know, continuing professional development. So um, if you're not doing that, and if you're not fulfilling the audit requirements, then you you will be, you know, your name will be stricken off. So I think um, when we when we talk about challenges, yes, all the other challenges exist. You know, we have resource problems, we have financial problems. But one thing that we can be helped with, you know, Lucas asked me, what is it that you, you need help with? So, yes, we do need resources in terms of finances. We do need resources in terms of terms of people. We'll, we're, we're so happy with people even giving us, um, you know, Skype like. Lucas was very kind. He sent us a video and the video we showed at the conference and, you know, um, people learned a lot from that. So where, where, where we need all of these things, we definitely need a body, which is a government body, not a local body, because what has happened is a lot of clinicians who have passed their, uh, have graduated, have then gone on, um, made an NGO, given it the name of speech pathology, Pakistan, or, you know, association of speech therapists or whatever, and what they're doing is you, as soon as you join the association, you get a license to practice from them. Um, and along with that license, you only pay another $20, which is 2000 rupees, and you get triple Cs. So when we ask them, what are these triple Cs? They don't actually know what the triple C stand for, but wow. because the ASHA has triple Cs, so you can pay $20 and get triple Cs. Now we've we've actually wow. fought because most of, most of these people had, um, were sort of, in some way associated with us, like they're trained under us. So I could fight with them at that level and get the triple C's out and say, look, you, you will be legally liable in some form and don't do this. And we managed to fight the triple C's out. They don't have the triple C's now, but for the first year or so, they were actually granting triple C's to anybody who was joining their um, association. So we have in Pakistan with the Medical and Dental Council, we have the Pakistan Medical Dental Council that does all of this. Um, they're the regulatory body. And I think one of the things that I was asking Lucas was to please, if possible, connect us to somebody who can help us set up something like this in Pakistan, because it's not something that one person can do. There, there are so many procedures that involve policies, paperwork. You know, we've already got so much going on that 
it's probably not possible for one person to just take the responsibility of setting something like that up. But I think the next year, like last year was the AAC year. Next year, our target is to actually get one of these um, regulatory bodies out and speak to the government and say, actually, somebody has to take, take notice of this and somebody has to be responsible for, for establishing something like this. Welcome back and thanks for listening to Speech Science. This is Michelle Wintering again. And be sure to come tune back in because we will have some interviews coming up for you with the ASHA president, a multilingual SLP who knows four different languages, and hopefully an interview with someone from the American Hippotherapy Association since I just wrapped up some continuing education myself with their level one, part one training. Our intro music, Please Listen Carefully by Jazar is licensed under an attribution share alike license. Bump music, County Fair Rock, copyright of Dake, John Daku at soundcloud.com slash dirt dog music. Closing music, The Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, Speech Science, and hit that subscribe button. Thanks. This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.